Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. Today, we're going to be talking to award-winning China analyst Ethan Gutman on organ harvesting and persecution in China. That's coming right up. Stay with us. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to Ethan Gutman, who's a China analyst. He has testified before Congress. He is a well-known expert on issues relating to China and especially persecution of minorities. His groundbreaking 20... A 2014 book based on hundreds of interviews with victims of the organ trafficking trade is called The Slaughter, Mass Killings, Organ Harvesting, and China's Secret Solution to Its Dissident Problem. Especially considering the fact that decoupling with China is so much in the news lately and that a lot of people want to know what's going on inside the communist country that's shaping so much of our news cycle. I invited uh, Ethan Gutman to come on the show and he kindly agreed to have a discussion about what actually goes on inside communist China. This is that discussion. I'll just uh, jump right in with my first question, which is what got you interested in this issue of, of China and how it treats dissidents? Well, I lived in China in 98 to 92, uh, to 98 to 2002, and uh, in Beijing. I actually loved it as uh, a business consultant, and I did some other jobs there. Uh, the, but I saw the crackdown on Falun Gong uh, firsthand, and mm. and uh, the day, uh, well, anyways, I just saw it a couple of times. I saw old ladies being beaten up and thrown into buses and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I pretended to be a lost tourist. I actually sort of snuck out because I knew something was happening in the middle of Beijing and came in a. Uh, put a bike and put a Starbucks bag in it and sort of some other silly things Right. Uh, and watch this. Uh, I didn't know what I was seeing. I didn't really understand it. I've never been particularly uh, spiritual and I was not so much interested in the religion, but I was amazed to see the, uh, you know, we had a lot of optimistic feelings about China at that time. You go back. Uh, there was the idea, you know, Western business was in there and it was really going to convert, uh, going to change everything. Uh, sort of the days were numbered of the party because uh, this great wave of commercialism would sort of crash, <laughs> crash over it and, and uh, destroy it. Uh, and I began to notice things that didn't, weren't right. And one of them was falling apart. The second one was watching the internet. Uh, that clearly everybody had hinged their hopes on the fact that the internet was basically uncontrollable. Uh, Bill Clinton famously said, trying to control the internet is like trying to nail jello to the wall. And uh, uh, In fact, uh, the companies, I was a consultant for APCO at the time, APCO, or, or what used to be called Arnold Porter Company in Washington, D.C. Uh, and we were doing public affairs, and I was very aware that some of my clients, or at least my potential clients, were very involved with surveillance with the Chinese PSB, Public Security Bureau of China. Uh, it, it was that uh, and the sense that 
we had all kind of gone native as, uh, you know, as expats. Uh, we had sort of fallen into kind of a trap uh, where we didn't want to lose our legitimacy in China and we wanted to play on and no matter what. And uh, finally I decided to make a break and I said, somebody's got to write about this. And, right. Uh, uh, that's all, really. Somebody's got to write about it and uh, it might as well be me. And of course that led to a lot of people getting very mad at me. And they said, well, how can you write a book about China? Because you were only there for three years. I've been here 30 years. I was like, well, why didn't you write 10 books? Uh, you know, so, uh, the, that's, you know, that's the, the point, I guess, is that my Chinese was never that good. And language ability has always been my, absolutely my weak spot, Achilles heel, whatever. Uh, and so, and I was already married when I went to China. I think that's very significant. And my marriage survived China. And for those reasons, it was easier for me to sort of uh, burn my bridges because I knew that that might well happen with my right. first book. So how did you go about uh, creating this book? It's a really bombshell book. I believe uh, Jay Nordlinger in, in the National Review called it an atom bomb when it came out based on a lot of the information that's in there. And so like most of us, are, I suppose, willing to believe that communist China is doing terrible things. But the detail that you have, the stories that you tell, I guess, how did you lay the groundwork for writing the book, The Slaughter? How did you get all of these interviews? How did you get these sources to talk to you? Tell us what went into to, to producing this book to begin with. Uh, you know, uh, that took seven years. Now, it's true that I sort of took the equivalent of two years to make a snack for myself in the kitchen and, and try some other things in the middle of it, but at least five years were spent on the book, and it was a tremendous amount of effort to interview those them, as many witnesses as I did. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of interviews that were on the cutting room floor uh, that never saw a light. Uh, those interviews were carefully, it was a, a careful construction. I was going for something that almost would turn into, would feel like a novel that was uh, narrative nonfiction as much as I could. And uh, at the same time, I was very aware of the organ harvesting issue, although I did not intend initially to write the book about that at all. It was supposed right. to be simply the conflict between the Chinese state and a spiritual group named Falun Gong, and the full conflict. All right? I mean, you know, I wanted everything in there. Uh, outside of a judgment on the religion, because that's not, I was not interested in, I'm not interested in judging people's spirituality. I don't feel like I have any particular purchase on that or, or any special expertise to, to make, to talk about that. And I feel that, that people's actions are more important anyways. I think that people's actions come through very strongly. Uh, and so does the Chinese state. Uh, Having said that, I'll never really be able to pull that off again. It was basically I was following refugees all over the world. There's one more reason why I can't ever do that again. The Chinese are wise to this method now. You see, right. at the time I was doing it, a lot of reporters weren't really interested in Falun Gong, even though it was obviously the major issue in China, the number one issue in China internally. Uh, and that was true for many, many years. And they didn't want to write about it partly because if you wrote about it, it was like handing in your, it was like getting your bird notice for China. You were sort right. of finished, unless you wrote about it in a very dishonest way where you sort of tried to be so even-handed, you know, that it was sort of like, right. well, you know, the, 
the Jews have a point, but so do the Nazis. And, you know, right, <laughs> sort of right. absurd, absurd even-handedness, or you ended up sort of saying, right, well, you know, right. uh, Falun Gong believes in, the, they say they believe in truthfulness, but I caught them lying about this. It's like, well, they're Chinese. I mean, what, what, you know, you live in a society where to lie is to, to breathe is to lie. That's what you do. Uh, it's, this is the hardest commandment for these people. Uh, why would you think that was such an interesting finding? I don't. Uh, I thought the important points, well, there were many important points. I didn't get into them. But I think the key thing was that the organ harvesting uh, that I'd stumbled into in my interviews, that I'd stumbled into somewhat of a, somewhat of a new approach to, to figuring out organ harvesting, which came down much less about documents and statistics and more about actual experiences that people had. Uh, well, they were in labor camp. I think that was an important story, and I had to get it out. Now, why it took so long, that's another story. My new book is going to be about, it's going to take in about a year and a half in development and then a year of writing. Uh, that's it. I, I'm pretty much done with the research. Uh, so it is an unusual book because of the amount of time. Uh, and because there was more access, a lot of refugees were getting out of China. I mean, not a lot, but by comparison with right now and the right. Uyghurs, you know, concentration camps, yeah, there were a lot of people getting out of China. Uh, the Chinese have really slammed right. that door. Uh, really have locks in that door now. They're never going to let that happen. They only make the same mistake once. Right. What what first what first like turned you on to the fact that that uh, organ harvesting was happening? Like it, this is it's sort of a thing that you know you hear in the background. There's been uh, Falun Gong interviews in like the Epoch Times and some of the publications that they run where they discuss it. But your book was the first one that really went into to detail, like people waking up on the operating table and things like that. It wasn't the first book to go into detail in a sense. That was really the, the place for that is 2006 and David Kilgore and David Matus of your country, of Canada, uh, who were both bang up human rights lawyers and really David Kilgore is more of a politician. He was uh, head of Asia Pacific for a while. And uh, he, I believe he's still the most elected member of that your parliament's ever had. Right. Uh, I'm not quite sure if that's still, if he still holds that record, but it's always been something I like to believe is true. Uh, he, they're both wonderful guys. They did a fantastic job in about six months. And they put it together as kind of a legal brief. I was doing something different. I mean, uh, just evidence. And uh, to me, a lot of what I find persuasive is being able to look into somebody's eyes, kind of sniff them and, and figure out if they're on the level, if they're telling me something real or if they're giving me propaganda, and if I can break down that propaganda and get to something real. Those are the interesting things. And in that, now, here's the, the turning point, was very early on, in Toronto, in fact. Uh, and I was, had left this place in Vermont, and we headed up to Montreal, where we had a terrible time, and our car was ripped off. Uh, everything was taken away, and I believe that there are spies in Montreal. It could well have been a spy action. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But at any rate, we kind of limped with a smashed up car over to Toronto. And we did some interviews there with three women who had just come out of labor camp. One of them was a very country woman. She was at her real, uh, kind of, I don't know, just a real rural feel to her. She was very mm -hmm. jolly and, uh, and kind of tough. And I, I like that kind of woman. And, and she, uh, 
you know, was talking about her experience. And then at one point she mentions, oh, yeah, I was given this medical examination. She starts going off about something else. And I'm just like, well, uh, hold on, let's, let's get back to that. We talked about it and became very clear as I asked her questions that she was given a medical examination, which made no sense from a medical perspective, unless you were looking for the organs. And the classic part of the interview was where I said, did they look at your eyes? And she said, yeah, they shined a light in my eye both eyes for about five minutes, uh, quite a long time looking at us. And I said, well, did they do a test? You know, uh, you know, a peripheral vision test, they do a focus test, they do any reading test. No, nothing involving the brain. You're not transplanting the brain here. You're taking out these tissues called the corneas and giving them somebody else. Uh, they examined her, her kidney, her liver, uh, they examined her heart, they've done the urine test, they did the EKG. Uh, they were picking her body over to see if she was a good person to harvest. Now, maybe she, I don't know why, how she got out exactly. I mean, well, I mean, it's in there in the interview. But the bottom line was she had no suspicions. Uh, I wasn't leading her. And she didn't know why I was asking questions. In fact, she got really irritated with me. Like, why are you asking me these stupid questions? I'm trying to talk to you about torture, my spiritual struggle in labor camp. And, of course, well, you can imagine, <laughs> that's catnip to somebody like me, right? Uh, because you're getting a completely unbiased sample. Right. Uh, and, you know, really that was the moment where I went, oh, my God, it's true. It really is true. Maybe it's true. Up till then, I sort of was planning to sort of reference the two David's work, you know. Right. And uh, I don't, didn't work closely with them back then. I didn't even know them very well. I met David Kilgore briefly. Uh, and at that point, I started going, well, maybe there's something here. And then I started being a little more attuned to that and asking more questions about it. So if you had to make the case to somebody that, that organ harvesting was happening in China, um, how is it happening? Why is it happening? Where is it happening? Sort of give us the lay of the land of what's taking place in China. Basically, it starts back in the 80s. Where they're, they're, and this is all established, everything I'm telling you. Right, right. Uh, in the 80s, the... They are going out uh, to execution grounds and taking dead prisoners who have been duly executed by Chinese law. Uh, I don't know if these people are really guilty or what they're guilty of, but they did, you know, they often, most of them are probably really pretty bad criminals of some sort. They would take the organs. It wasn't done on a big scale. In the 1990s, mid-1990s, something interesting happens in Xinjiang in northwest China which has always been China's laboratory. It was used for nuclear weapons testing as well. And the, uh, they start doing live organ harvesting in the execution grounds. And we know this one very clearly for, we have a couple of witnesses on it, but the most, the witness that everybody loves the most is a guy named Denver Totti, who's actually a doctor, who actually performed, took out the kidneys and liver of a man who's, who had been shot, but in, not in the heart, in a way that was actually non-lethal. It was enough to send the body into severe shock, but as he points out, the heart was still beating the entire time while he was removing the organs. Yeah, And he, uh, actually when he first kind of confessed this to me, and it was the first time he'd ever talked about it, uh, it's very jarring. I mean, he, he was alarmed and sweating and, and, and near tearful. And, you know, it was a, now he talks about it in a fairly calm way. That happens over time, that's fine. Uh, but 
uh, this was something that had really haunted him. He didn't know who this person was. He didn't know if this person was a political prisoner or a regular prisoner. He had no idea. Uh, that was the beginning of something new because live organ harvesting, uh, live organs that are taken from somebody who's still alive are far more likely to cause no trouble in the new host. Okay. Right. Uh, it's like, it's like flowers cutting flowers under running water or something. It just, they get into the vase and they're okay. Uh, in 1997, the Uyghurs have a little, uh, demonstration in Gulja, in a town called Gulja, major, Uyghur major town. Yeah. Yeah, and the they're put down as if it's an armed insurrection. It was not. It was a uh, the men went without coats, even though it was quite cold, to show that they were unarmed. Uh, Chinese shot a lot of them, and then started uh, harvesting a few of them. Now, on behalf of high-ranking Chinese Communist Party cadres, so right from the beginning, the thing is state-run. Okay, this is not a rogue doctor operation. These are top Chinese Communist Party cadres coming to the hotel. And a doctor, another doctor whose name I can't reveal, uh, but is, you know, is credible, uh, went, it was told to go in and start taking blood samples from the political prisoners of Arumchi, the Arumchi prison. And he does. And they get their organs, and then six more come. It's that kind of thing. Still very small scale. It explodes after Fallen God persecution starts in 1999. By 2001, you really have a sudden, uh, it's like there's a shot of adrenaline delivered to the transplant system of China. And this is going on official records and unofficial records. They all agree on this. There's an explosion. It goes, it's not just in one area, it goes every province in China starts building transplant centers and training doctors, okay, training surgeons, building surgical teams. And first it's kidneys. Then it's, they can do kidneys and livers. Then they're doing kidneys, livers, lungs, kidneys, livers, lungs, and hearts, okay? It, to the point where we're, where we are today, which is China is doing approximately, you know, 80,000 uh, transplants per year. Well above uh, USA, neighbors to the South, or anything done in Canada or any other place in the world. This is, uh, America does about, uh, I think, 35,000 transplants at most uh, per year. Uh, this is about 80,000, maybe more. We don't really fully know, though we did an extensive study of that in 2016, just using Chinese documents. And the numbers we were coming up with were sort of spectacular. Uh, although there's a, tendency to, to, there's a tendency of the Chinese psyche to brag a little bit and sort of say if a fish is, you know, I caught a this big and it shows that's really more like this and so I, I I was actually the one who did those numbers and I, I discounted it based on that simply on the fact that people tend to exaggerate their factory outputs and so forth right. a little bit well mostly to Chinese uh, there's a wealthier population now a middle-class population in China and some very wealthy people a lot of these businessmen their lungs are ruined because the pollution is terrible in the east coast of China. Uh, and that's certainly true. That is also, the big money, however, is foreign organ tourists. Okay, so if, for example, a Canadian will probably pay about 10 times as much for an organ as a Chinese national will. Uh, same for an American. A Japanese, because they hate to bargain, will pay 20 to 30 times more. Uh, there's all kinds of national characteristics that uh, in the foreign organ tourists, but that's never been the 
essence of my study. As much as it's very interesting to people outside of the country, uh, I, I consider these people kind of victims of the system in a way too, a bit like drug addicts. And uh, I, I, I want to go after the drug dealers, not the drug addicts, if you follow me. No, they're usually kept at arm's length. They may have some sense of it, but they really are kept at arm's length and they're given enough deniability that they can treat it as a little bit muddled in their own minds. If you right. uh, so I don't think it's, you know, for that reason, that's another reason why we don't tend to want to go after. It's a little bit like abortion. I mean, you don't really want to go after, the, if you're against abortion, you don't want to go after the women so much. Right. Abortion, you want to go after the doctors. So, uh, who facilitate this, or, or didn't give the didn't even give them an option in some cases? Right, right. You know, the this is the same kind of notion is that we have to get away from this idea of, of blaming somebody who's absolutely desperate to live. Right, uh, they're not fully responsible. I mean, at this point, it's getting a little ridiculous now. What I'm saying is that that was true at one time, and when this was right. considered more to be a kidney in the bathtub story. Now, a lot of people have been exposed to the fact that this is going on. And uh, I, I really find it hard to believe people are that naive about it, but uh, uh, but I still think it comes down to, uh, you know, let's give another example. Hospitals make the appointments in South Korea, for example. We know that happens. In Japan, they all go to the, pretty much the same hospital to get there. They go as a tour group. It's very Japanese. And they, they go to the China-Japan Friendship Hospital. Okay, where they serve Japanese food and they speak Japanese and, you know, all this stuff so they can get their organs there. Uh, Taiwanese didn't have to do anything like this. They need no go between because they speak Chinese perfectly well. They just use Google. Okay. Uh, the Germans, it's done through a series of surgeons. The Saudis do it through their consulate, as far as we know. That's the main, <laughs> the main gateway. Uh, so everybody plays to type here. Okay, everybody's got their, uh, right. you know, uh, everybody plays the type, and we all, uh, every country has its national characteristics of uh, organ tourism. Uh, and I'd love to see organ tourism interfered with, and to some extent, I think Canada's, I don't know exactly where that is legally, and I'm sorry about that, but I should, should have read up about it. But I know that you're right on the edge of, of uh, becoming one of the few countries which has banned organ tourism. Well, there's a couple of theories on it. We don't have, we have some information on that. Um, we have some very suggestive evidence through Chinese documents uh, and stuff that they put in their own medical journals, which, you know, brag about how these amazing harvesting operations, which usually average age 28, okay? So these are, think about it, how many people die when they're 28? It's really right. very difficult. Uh, these are people who are 28, that's the, with no cardio problems, no lung problems and so forth. And, uh, you know, uh, are, how are they killed? Well, the problem is if you just do, obviously you could just sort of, uh, you could just try putting somebody under and if you give them a little too much, they're going to die. I mean, that's, but that's a bad way to do it because the organs become sluggish. So we know two things. We know that they worked on a device and it actually apparently did get a copyright, which we didn't know for a while. We didn't know that back in 2016. We now know it does. And that's a chair that basically uh, knocks out your cerebral cortex.
Okay, wow. so it makes you brain dead. Uh, but the heart can still kill, still, still keep beating, you see, for a little while. Okay, uh, that device was. Uh, there were several surgeons involved, um, top flight surgeons. I mean, these are top people in the country, and they said it was for medium-sized animals. Now the that device is also, uh, you know, that tells us something else, which they're probably using ECMO, uh, which is a system of oxygenating the organs while you remove, while you, uh, while the person is doing that and then keeping the organs oxygenated while you transport them if you have to. Uh, and that's very, very important right now because the Uyghurs are generally out there in Xinjiang and, you know, a plane flight will take you four to five hours or something to get, uh, to the East Coast, right? Uh, so you have to keep these organs fresh. Fortunately, fortunately uh, for the Chinese, they've been putting or human organ fast lanes in uh, at least two of the airports in Xinjiang, and one, I believe, in Heijilong, uh, and one's in Urumqi, one's in Kashgar. And we have pictures of this. They're actually, uh, they're, they're green line, they're green lanes, and they actually say human organs, and they say it in English in one of them, in the Urumqi one, I believe. Uh, so these are fast lanes there to make sure the organs are arrived fresh. So, in, in all of the interviews that you did, what are some of the stories that really jumped out at you? Because I know you interviewed hundreds of people over, as you mentioned earlier, seven years. Well, there's so many different sort of things that jumped out at me. I mean, there was the, the, the young woman who was running a, a kind of a, an apartment where anybody could come from all over the country to protest for Falun Gong. They could go to Tiananmen Square and protest, and these people would go, and they'd be arrested, and they'd never come back. So it was kind of a staging point for... I don't think she thought of it as martyrdom. She didn't at the time, but now it's clear that it was. Uh, these people, generally, when they got into prison, and this is something I was able to verify with person, the refugee after refugee, they gave up in the idea of giving their names because they all knew that then your family would be persecuted at home. So they would, you know, they'd ask them, what's your name? And they'd say, Fallen Gone Practitioner. And they'd say, well, uh, okay, where, where, where are you from? What's your province? And they'd say, the cosmos. Now, that sounds ridiculous, but it was actually, you know, this was a absolutely, these people did not want to see the horrible consequences. They didn't want to see everybody lose their jobs, the financial destruction of their families and whatever meager savings they had. And so they would say these things, and then they became absolutely a captive population with nobody to look after them uh, on a vast scale. Something similar has happened with the Uyghurs. I mean, right now we're, we're I mean, I was been doing major interviews on this and uh it's very clear that the numbers it's we're sort of looking at organ harvesting 3.0 now a much you know, sort of faster and more efficient version but there were i think the most compelling story that you talk about was actually people talking about a bunch of guys who hijacked tv stations or hijacked the tv signals in a, one single city uh and they were able to pull this off and put on sort of Falun Gong programming, and it was an amazing story. Of course, they're all killed. They're all, they all were killed afterwards. But they did it, and it was one of those few moments. It was, you know, what's weird about the story is that they actually kind of would, you could say they were the fathers of the Internet freedom movement. Right. 
Okay, they they, I mean, this is true freedom fighters. Okay, <laughs> and I, did, did they do anything violent? No, they cut wires. Okay, that's not violent. Okay, did they destroy anything? No. Uh, well, did they reconnect the wires? No, because they were arrested. <laughs> but you know, I think that's pretty minimal uh, damage. Uh, I was very impressed by that. Uh, when I was talking to people who knew those guys, uh, they came through as very vivid characters, very real. There's Great Sea and Big Truck and the Monkey. And, uh, you know, we have all these kind of characters. It was almost like a, a comic book or something, like a, a war comic book or something. That's, I think, what my book really did add, was that it was the first book to pick up that the Uyghurs were being harvested. Nobody had ever said that before. The second thing I found out was that the Christians were also being harvested. Now, it was only one group back then, and I don't, can't tell you about the other groups, but it, back then it was Church of Almighty God, uh, which also known as Eastern Lightning, which is considered kind of, I don't know, I mean, people say all kinds of things about the Church of Almighty God, but they ought to meet with some of them before they say some of these things because I found, I've met with them in London, England, and found them to be pretty pleasant people. Uh, you know, very dedicated, uh, but uh, not that unusual. I mean, it's very much sort of born-again Christianity is the way I sort of saw it. I may be wrong, but I don't think I'm that wrong, <laughs> honestly, about this. And, uh, of course, the Tibetans. The Tibetan monks were being harvested. They started clearing out the monasteries and transporting them to hospitals, uh, usually a day away back in 2003. Uh, and only some of them would come back. So, you know, we, we have seen this with other groups. I think, you know, you have to say that George Bush, uh, you know, did, didn't do a lot on China, but the one thing he did do was he really sort of drew a kind of a Schindler's List circle around uh, Christians in China, right. which held for a while. And then when Obama came in, he sort of said, no, no, we're for all human rights all over China and so forth, which meant sort of like, and that sort of made it open season on Christians. And we've kind of seen that ever since. When you look at the situation right now, based on what you know, um, what, who is China targeting the most? And and how is 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 the organ harvesting just a way that they essentially profit from their persecution, or is it a method of punishment that is added to the persecution? Much a method of punishment. I think the uh, I would say that they have two goals: one is to wipe out their enemies, and the second is to make money from it and support right. the infrastructure of wiping them out. Okay, so it's kind of circular. For example. The big U.S. who's the big group now? Well, it's clearly the Uyghurs. I mean, they've kind of run out of, I don't know how many 28-year-old Falun Gong you can even find in China right now. I mean, I'm sure they're there, but they're thin on the ground. Uh, Falun Gong has gotten older. They've been, there's been attrition, okay, both through just natural health matters and through uh, organ harvesting. The Uyghurs, they have you know, a million to three million in concentration camps right now. They're all blood tested. Everybody who's Uyghur uh, or Hui or Kazakh or uh, Kyrgyz in Xinjiang has been blood tested, has been given a so-called health check that no Han Chinese ever had to do. Okay, so these people have been looked at very carefully for their organs. Uh, I believe they're disappearing at a lowest at about 25,000 a year. And I have good reason for saying that. Now, you know, 
out of that number, well, who's the, uh, you know, what's, what's the benefit? Well, those camps cost money. It was hard to right, build them. Right. And this is one of the ways you support those camps. These people, every Uyghur right now, uh, if they're healthy, is worth about half a million dollars sold to uh, uh, foreign Oregon tourists. About half a million. Maybe a million if you're looking at something like a Japanese tourist uh, or a South Korean, even. Uh, you know, especially Japanese, maybe a Saudi. Uh, don't forget, these are halal organs. Or that's the way the Saudis look at them. These are people who do not eat pork. They may drink, they may smoke. But unlike Falun Gong, they don't eat pork. So they right. are uh, considered okay for its use. Uh, I, I know it's hard to think about it that way, but uh, it's clear that something like that is going on in the Arab world. Uh, it has been for some time. You can go back and hospitals uh, in China, which were really advertising this stuff, would give you a choice if you're a foreigner of uh, continuing in English or continuing in Arabic. Uh, uh, I've seen them with my own eyes. And uh, uh, so this has been around for a while. So it's not a really, it's, it's, it's one of these things that, you know, doesn't have to be an either or. It's not, you know, money's money, okay? Uh, <laughs> uh, and some of this money obviously gets kicked back, or a lot of it gets kicked back to somebody who's connected with the Central Committee and so forth, so they have to wet their beak. A lot of people wet their beak on it. Uh, at the same time, it supports, the, it supports China's goals, which are to rid itself of people who they feel cannot be converted, who will never be trustworthy. On that, on that subject, just because your area of research is so unique, I've had China experts on the show before, but nobody whose who's specific area is this. Based on your research, your interviews, what is the situation for Christians in China as you understand it right now? I'm not an expert on that. I mean, there are other people who I've talked to about it. My feeling is there's still some kind of protective coating a little bit. I don't want to put that too strongly. But that compared to the Uyghurs, for example, they're, right. uh, I doubt they're being harvested on the same level. Uh, the, uh, they have one other kind of advantage. Christianity in China is atomized. It is so many little groups, right? They're not all connected. Uh, it's very hard for the authorities to kind of, um, well, I suppose to the authorities, it's a bit like weeds in a garden. I mean, there's all different types of weeds, right? Right, yep. Uh, but, you know, it's not like you can just spray weed killer all over the place and everything's fine. You can't do that. You kind of can do that with Falun Gong. You can definitely do that with the Uyghurs, right? <laughs> because yep. they're all in one region yep. and you can just shut that region off, you know, build massive surveillance. And that's exactly what they've done. They've shut it off to the world. And the only thing the world sees is when they let CNN or BBC camera crews in and then they show them Uyghur dancers in the camps. And <laughs> CNN and BBC put those on, on TV even though they know full well that the visual image is always more powerful than anything cynical they say under, the, under that. Uh, this, is, this is one of the things that really appalls me. But you, you can see that. So I don't think the Christians, uh, I think they can kind of sneak through a bit. But every time, as you've seen for yourself, every time they try to build a church and put up a cross and so forth, then it gets knocked out. Uh, so they're sort of saying like you can you can exist, but you're but it's pretty hopeless. Don't go any further ever, right? Uh, and again, I do think that uh, 
Christians all over the world, we don't think of Christians as terribly united, uh, no. terribly good at defending their own. But the truth is, they're better at defending their own than Muslims are, as far as I can see, because the Uyghurs have gotten almost nothing from the other from Muslim nations. Nothing. Only Turkey right. briefly stood up on this issue. Very briefly. Uh, I'm really, I, I'm trying to think of another country. I mean, the, 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 the leader of Pakistan pretended he didn't know what the issue was when he was asked about it. Right. Uh, so we, and that's been true all over. And the other, uh, that's been worse. I mean, they, you know, most of the top Muslim countries have signed uh, statements saying that China's doing the right thing. Uh, that hasn't happened with Christians. So I think Christians do get a little more protection. I think what the West thinks about that matters. Uh, and I think that's kind of why they picked on um, Eastern Lightning or Church of Almighty God, because that group was in, uh, very unpopular with other house Christian groups. And from my perspective, of course, that's not the place to settle things is on the operating table. I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, if, you have, if you have differences with another uh, sect or uh, of, of your own religion, you might want to sit down and talk to them about it. Uh, you know, uh, this is not the way to go. I'm not blaming the other groups, but I am saying that uh, the other groups haven't helped in that sense. And that's one of the downsides of this atomization of Christianity in China. There's a lot of discussion right now um, because of, of COVID-19 and all these sorts of things about uncoupling from China. For various reasons, of course, there's some experts who are saying that the virus came from China and they lied about it, which helped it spread faster. Other people, of course, are saying, well... Um, we, we couldn't get the, the supplies we needed from China when we needed them. We need to start producing this stuff ourselves. What, uh, like, based on, on all of your research, but also just from your perspective for the last couple of months, do you think there's any chance at this point of the West decoupling from China, or are we sort of, like, locked in this weird death dance? I think it's inevitable that we're going to uncouple. And we're already seeing this. Japanese, uh, the Japanese are paying their companies to get out of China. Okay. Uh, yeah, they are. We're, we're not alone on this at all. Uh, I think a lot of businesses, usually, I know American business. I know American business lobbyists in Washington. They're, it's amazing how quiet they've been. Okay. Uh, you know, really remarkable. They're not saying anything. Now, the truth is, for my own issue, I mean, uh, and I was pushing this well before the COVID-19 thing came along, or Wuhan virus, or coronavirus, or whatever phrase you like to use, and they're all fine and good in my opinion mind. Uh, I was saying that really this should be treated the same way the Soviet psychiatrists were in the 60s and 70s, 80s, and 90s, which is we had no contact. I know this. My parents were both psychiatrists, okay? Uh, and they, you know, I used to ask my dad, why don't we, you're interested in ESP, right? And they said, I said, well, you know, he said yes, and I said, well, where do they do experiments on that? Do they do them here in America? And he said, no, they mainly do them in Russia. And I said, well, how come you don't get in contact with the Russian psychiatrists about this? And he said, we don't, we're not allowed to really have any contact with them because when somebody disagrees with the government in Soviet Union, they, they, get, put in a, uh, they get put in a hospital and they're tortured, psychiatric hospital, and they're tortured and given drugs. Uh, and that was true. The World Psychiatric Association used to stand up and denounce the Soviet Union every year right. for doing this. And they weren't allowed to go to our conferences or publish in our journals. They weren't allowed to attend our universities. 
uh, you know, they certainly weren't allowed to, they weren't allowed to tour around our countries. That's the opposite of what's happened here. The Chinese have been let in all over the place on this. The, the, the Western, uh, the Transplantation Society in the Vatican have been so eager to make a deal with China that they, uh, you know, have bent over backwards to say, oh, China's reforming and now they're leading the world in ethical organ harvesting. I mean, completely the opposite of what is actually happening. Where what we should be doing is decoupling. We should be ostracizing this group. Okay, I'm not saying we have to ostracize the entire medical community of China. Uh, nor am I saying we have to completely cut off all financial ties of every kind with China. Though I wouldn't be against it either. But I would say this: we should have no truck with these people. Okay, right. with the individuals who got involved in this kind of. Um, butchery how can we these are monsters i mean they created they've been turned into monsters whatever they may have their own stories their own excuses but uh we just we can't be involved with them and we can't even be involved with them until they can come back and explain exactly what happened in the past as well the past counts uh there are you know and under my estimation this thing has been taken about as many victims as approximately the syrian civil war did those are, that's a lot of people. And that's a lot of people who need compensation. They need apology. They need to publish their histories uh, and so forth. Uh, this is the only way towards healing. Uh, if that were to happen, yeah, I think we could all move forward with, with the Chinese, but we cannot. Right. So we must decouple. We have to quarantine ourselves from this. This is a virus. And this belief that you can treat people in this way. Okay, that you can treat them as commodities in that way, as it's obviously a virus, and in the same way that the Soviet side, we know more about the, what goes on in Chinese hospitals than we ever knew about what went on in Soviet mental hospitals. Right. The difference is the money. The difference is that we, you know, uh, we, uh, we uh, doctors and medical world thinks that China is really innovative and they don't want to miss out on some new innovation. Uh, they think there's a lot of money over in China. They think there's some prestige and they want to be involved uh, in that. And they do not want to be seen as intolerant. They're terrified of this. Right. Yeah, I saw that when, uh, when, when Brian Adams had to give an apology for some statement about wet markets or something like that. And I'm like, the day you have to apologize for condemning a communist regime that has concentration camps... Uh, it really is. It really is sort of hard to fathom how crazy that's all gotten, especially when any reasonable person knows that you're not critiquing uh, people of Chinese descent or Asians. Or it, it's so far from being a racial thing that you have to be intentionally being thick to make a, a political point. Um, I guess to, to to close it off, obviously true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the last question I wanted I wanted to, to ask, and this is the one I asked to make sure I didn't miss anything, is is what is the one thing you wish everybody understood about organ harvesting in China, about your book, The Slaughter? Well, it's I wish they understood that the that they have to actually, you know, when people say, Oh, I'm skeptical of this or that kind of thing, I I, I don't begrudge them that skepticism. I was skeptical myself 
Uh, and that's why I did that many interviews. That's why I took that long to write the book. Right. Uh, so what I ask in return is read one document. It doesn't have to be my book. My book's far more entertaining than most of the ones that are of the evidence uh, that's done by uh, uh, Jeffrey Nice. Who's the the greatest human rights prosecutor in the world today? Uh, a fantastic study by Matthew Robertson, assessing all the evidence. It's very even handed. Read a sing at least. I think it's you know, or you can read my book, which is uh, is they're having a hard time with the COVID thing, um, getting it out on uh, on hardback. But you know what? I make more you know, much more of it, a little bit more money from the electronic edition anyway, so you can find that on Amazon. <laughs> Don't go to the Russian websites. Those are really bad. You'll have to buy a new computer, okay? The ones where they give it to you for free. Don't do that, okay? Just a word to the wise. I'm looking out for you here. <laughs> All right, uh, Mr. Gutman, we'll tell everybody where to find your book. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk through this. Uh, your research has been invaluable. You're, you're great. It's great to be on this show. Thanks a lot. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with China analyst and author of The Slaughter, Ethan Gutman. Thanks so much for joining us this week. If you want to check out past shows, head over to lifesightnews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You can subscribe there. If you're watching this on YouTube, of course, you can like and subscribe uh, right here on this channel. If you want to check out other culture war news, head over to lifesightnews.com. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.